Well, it is said that there are at least two things in life you do not talk about, politics and religion. And so today we're going to talk about both. I, I must be a glutton for punishment. Um, so I guess I should apologize if this is the last Sunday Riverwood ever has uh, because of this. Uh, it's been a great run. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Um, but I, I, I obviously jest because we will have worship gathering next week. But there have been churches destroyed by these topics. You know, there's been such disagreement that, that yeah, people have left and, and churches have crumbled. I mean, families have been broken apart. Uh, friendships have ended because of disagreements about politics and religion. Why does it get so contentious? I mean, because you, you know the tension. I mean, when you go on Facebook, especially during a presidential cycle, you feel the tension. When you, you know, are sitting at work on, on lunch break and maybe there's a TV on or you overhear someone's conversation, you feel the tension. Or, or maybe when you go to the family reunion, you feel this tension that as soon as someone starts to bring up politics or religion, it's just as like, oh no, why are they so contentious? Here's my theory. Both politics and religion have an aim to improve life. They want to make life good for the masses. But what happens is people don't agree on what is the best, what is good for everyone. Or even if they agree, well, yeah, that would be good for everyone. They have disagreements on how to get there. And so what happens is because you think your way is the best way or your idea of best is the right way, it ends up becoming a struggle for power. And that's where the contention comes in. Most of us no longer see government as the, the framework, the, the boundaries that our, our nation's leaders have put into place to help make life better and safer for the citizens. No, most of us, if you bring up the word government, we, we think of it as a power struggle, as this bureaucratic system that wields power not to do what's best for us, but to do what they think is best for them. And because then there's disagreements, that's when the yelling starts. But I think they've done a great job of even hooking us in and, and getting us just to go right along with it. Because how often do you sense inside that if your candidate gets elected, then everything's going to go great. It, it'll, it'll be better. But if the other candidate, the wrong candidate gets elected, that, that's it. That's the end of America as we know it. And if you ever feel that inside, if so, you have bought into the idea that it's just about power. Today, we're going to study this out of Romans chapter 13. I think the answer is going to be a little bit surprising to you because you're wondering, so what do I do if the wrong candidate gets into office? Or, or how do I behave if, you know, my government makes decisions with which I disagree? How do I move forward? And, and how does my faith, if you are a Jesus follower, you're wondering, how does my faith play into this? I think it might surprise some of you. That what we're going to see today is that it does not matter if the Oval Office is occupied by a Democrat or Republican or even a dictator. That really it comes down to what is our response to God? Because our response to the governing authorities over us reveals part of how we worship and, and follow Jesus. And so we've got to step into this really sticky, messy thing, as contentious as it can be. Because I think God wants to do something in us through our approach to government. So would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, 
as we get ready to jump into Romans 13, I pray that you be our teacher today. I realize that I am speaking to a church family that politically is all over the spectrum. And today, God, we do not want this to become about uh, whether we follow, you know, agree with Trump or disagree with Trump or, or if, if it's, you know, the things going on within the Iowa legislature that we're celebrating or we're, we're upset about. Lord, that this today would become about Jesus, that this become about what you're calling us to do and that we would be willing to do it. Because it isn't that, that you're trying to suppress us. You're actually calling us to this for our good. Because ultimately, this is about our relationship with you. And so, Father, I pray that you'd help us to hear clearly from you today, not just from me, but what your Holy Spirit has for each and every person that you've brought here this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. All right, if you brought a Bible with you, open it up to Romans chapter 13. Uh, we are in the middle of this series that we're calling And Jesus, looking at these various topics and how do we bring Jesus into the midst of this. The last three weeks was out of Romans 12, 9 through 21, as we looked at the idea of relationships. Three weeks ago, it was just relationships in general. And then two weeks ago, it was kind of our relationship with kids, whether they be our own children or, or you know, someone else's kids. And then last week, we looked at this idea of the relationship of marriage and how can we apply apply Romans 12, 9 through 21, even into the marital relationship. So this week, we finally get out of chapter 12, and we jump into chapter 13. And I think it actually gets stickier, which is quite something to say, because last week, I read out of Ephesians 5, and I had to jump into that wonderfully controversial passage that says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. You know, so I was really, really popular with all of the, the ladies. This week, I, I think it actually gets harder because we're going to be told to submit to the government. So join with me. Chapter 13, start in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, if we wanted this to be a really short and sweet sermon... We could read that, look at it, and say, okay, so apparently Paul is saying, submit to the government, just go and submit. There you go. We're done, and I can close in prayer. However, I think some of you would walk out of here really, really frustrated because some of you in this room 
do not like the current administration. Donald Trump drives you nuts. And some of the things that have been going on just makes you sick inside. And so you find yourself hearing this saying, how in the world am I supposed to submit to an administration that I totally disagree with and I even feel is unbiblical? But others of you in this room, you find yourself going, oh, yeah, totally agree. Because God placed Trump in, in the office, so therefore we should submit ourselves. However, if we read this passage just three years ago, you might be sitting there going, oh, how am I supposed to do this? Because Obama is clearly making policies that are unbiblical. How can I submit myself to this? What we're going to discover today is it really isn't about who is in the office. What I see in this passage are five different reasons and ways that God tells us to submit to the government. And the first one is this, that we are to submit to the government in action. We are to submit in action. So if you're a uh, fill-in-the-blank person, you can fill that in, in your notes. Um, otherwise, just uh, clue in with me. But submit in action is our first point. Look with me at verse 6 and 7. Again, Paul writes, For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God. So it's this idea that God has put these people in place. This is their job. They're help, you know, helping serve our society. And so therefore, they deserve to be paid. A worker deserves their wages. So pay your taxes. And that's what he basically says there in verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. When I read this in my study this week, immediately the passage where Jesus is standing before a bunch of Jewish leaders and they're trying to trap him. This came to mind. They asked him, hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Because if he says yes, oh, then clearly he's, you know, saying, oh, yeah, the, the Roman government is good. And they all knew the Roman government at that time was just pure evil. But if he says, no, don't pay them, ah, now they can turn him into the Roman officials and they can eliminate this Jesus guy because he's kind of a threat to how the Jews wanted to, to continue to lead their religion. And instead, Jesus gives them a brilliant answer. He says, well, give me a coin. So they bring a coin. He says, whose image is on it? And they said, well, the Caesar's. He says, all right, render to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar and to God that which belongs to God. And they just were stunned because Jesus basically was just saying, Pay your taxes. I think Paul would tell us, fill out the census paperwork when it comes every 10 years. Like, license your car. You know, do what your government requires of you. Submit to the government. Now, as much as I'm talking about, you know, Trump and Obama and, 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 and America, I have to say, we actually live in a very stable society. Some of you may feel like now it doesn't feel very stable right now. But if you compare us to a lot of other countries, America is actually very, very stable. Yes, the day after Trump uh, was uh, inaugurated, there was a women's march around. And, and they, they protested this. But they didn't turn into looting. There, there weren't, they didn't turn into murderous riots. Like it, it, they were yelling a lot, making a lot of you know, speeches. But, but it didn't turn you know, deadly. Or, or when... Trump had his hand on the Bible and his hand was up, you know, and he's taking the oath of office. Obama did not come up with a knife behind his back, stab him and take back power. Like, that's not the type of society we live in. We actually live in a fairly stable government. So that actually makes it slightly easier for us than some of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in other nations where it isn't as stable. Take Venezuela, for instance. Leanne and I lived in Venezuela right before Hugo Chavez was elected. Uh, we got back to America, and within uh, just a few months, 
Hugo Chavez was elected president. And within just a few months after his uh, inauguration, he changed the, the Constitution because it used to be you could serve a term for five years, you'd have to take at least one term off, and then you could serve a second term for five years, and then you couldn't serve as president any longer. Yeah, Hugo didn't like that idea. He kind of wanted to remain in power. And so he changed the Constitution, which would allow him to continue to serve consecutive terms. And then they rigged the elections so that he would always get elected, no matter who was running against him. Nice and convenient. Well, then he found out he had cancer, and so he ended up kind of hand-selecting his successor. And to this day, Nicolas Maduro is now the president of Venezuela. And the reason I put president in quotes is because he acts like a dictator. He controls the media. If anyone, if any public figure rises up and speaks against him, he has them arrested, and they're, they're put under house arrest or sometime even into the prison system. I mean, he has a tight fist on this country. And what is happening is their economy is going to hell. And because the economy is absolutely collapsing, now they can no longer get enough food. And so now there are people starving within this nation that back in the 70s and 80s because of the oil boom, they were one of the wealthiest countries in all of the world. And now they don't even have enough money to buy food. saw a documentary uh, probably a year or two ago of a, of a husband and wife, both were uh, pr uh, university professors, both you know, high educated. They did not have enough money to feed them and their son. And so they fed their son every day, but they would each take a day off because that's all they could afford. This, this lady was already small and petite, and she said she'd already lost like 30 pounds because they didn't have enough food. Just uh, not too long ago, uh, one of the, our former students from the school that we worked at posted a, a link to a story about a lady who passed away because they couldn't get medicine. They just couldn't get simple medicine. If she could have had the medication, she could have continued to live a long life. No medicine, she died. All because Maduro keeps a tight fist on the country and acts like a dictator. So now, if you're a Jesus follower living in Venezuela, do you find yourself just saying, well, Romans 13 says we got to just submit to the government. Or do you go out into the streets and join the throngs that are daily protesting the government? Because what is happening is a travesty. You know, let, let's make this even stickier. Let's go back to 1930s and 1940s Nazi Germany. It's not just Maduro, it's Adolf Hitler. And it isn't just keeping a tight fist on everything. It is actually intentionally killing five and a half million people. As a Jesus follower living at that time, you would know that God created humans in his image. And now they're, they're being killed intentionally. Do you just do a Romans 13 thing and submit? Or do you rise up to try and protect lives? What do you do? Unfortunately, if you jump into Romans 13, you do not find Paul giving us an if-then clause, like a condition. Like, if the government is good, if the government is honoring people, if the government does this, then you can submit. No, he's saying you must submit. And you're saying, they go, wait, wait, but submit to a Hitler? Submit to a Maduro? Actually, yes. Because we have to put this in its historical context. That brings us to point number three. That we are to submit to the government regardless. I'm sorry, this is point number two. Regardless of who the leader is. Submit regardless of who is the leader. This letter is called 
uh, this book is the epistle to the Romans, right? It's being written to the believers living in Rome. Rome was the capital city, the epicenter of the Roman Empire. Now, before it became the Roman Empire, it was more like the Roman Republic. I, I learned this week that they used to have two heads of state. They, they called them consuls. And these guys were elected for a one-year term, two of them, and the two of them had to agree. If, if one of them disagreed with the other, they couldn't move forward. They couldn't enact legislation. Their, the Senate, which was 300 people, served as kind of their advisors. And so the Senate would discuss things and bring it to the two consuls, and then the two consuls would make the decision. But it meant they had to be in agreement, and it kind of kept things moving along slowly. And so one consul decided we need to move away from the two head to just one head. It was a guy by the name of Julius Caesar. Caesar stood before the Senate to argue for this one head of state, saying it would make them more powerful, make them more efficient. Like they as a nation would become even greater if they had just an emperor instead of two consuls. Big debate broke out. And on the day that Julius Caesar was going to come, and this was going to come as, as a vote, and they were going to totally change the, the government, his opposition came and killed him which we now know as the Ides of March. And one of the guys that killed him was his own friend, Brutus, who completely disagreed. And Shakespeare made it famous by et tu, Brute. That led to a civil war, and Julius Caesar's uh, supporters ended up winning that war, and the Republic switched to the empire. Julius Caesar's own nephew, Octavian, ended up being named the first uh, emperor, the first head of state. He decided to change his name to Augustus. Uh, Augustus simply means um, revered one. But to try and tie himself to the great Julius Caesar that put forth this idea of one emperor, he adopted the name Caesar. So he became known as Caesar Augustus. And every emperor after, somewhere in their name, would take on the name of Caesar, trying to tie themselves to Julius Caesar, saying that they had the right to be the emperor. Well, two generations after Augustus, along came a, an emperor named Nero. Now, maybe you've heard of Nero, uh, but if not, let me just tell you what a remarkable guy this, this Nero was. First of all, he killed off his brother because his mom said, your brother's a threat to the throne. And then he got tired of his mom trying to control him to do what she wanted to for the empire. So he killed his own mom. Oh, and then he decided he wanted to build a big palace, but there wasn't enough room. So he torched Rome. 70% of Rome burned down. And he didn't want to take the blame for it because then everyone would hate the emperor. So he blamed the Christians. And so a widespread persecution of Christians started. And Nero had a blast with that. He began to feed Christians to hungry lions in the Colosseum. He began to take them and tie them to posts, dip them in oil or cover them in oil, and then light them up to serve as lanterns in his gardens at night so he could take a walk. This was a wonderful, kind, gentle man. And that's the guy who was in charge when Paul wrote this letter. Uh, a couple of scholars I read this week said that Paul wrote this probably from the city of Corinth in about 56 AD. If they're accurate, that means Nero was emperor because he started in 54 AD. Now, maybe he hadn't done quite all of these things yet, but it didn't matter. The previous, uh, before Nero, uh, it was kind of his stepdad. Um, he was not a very nice guy. Uh, Augustus before that was not a very nice guy. Like the emperors were not wonderful. And Nero turned out to be one of the worst of them. And yet Paul still has the audacity to write this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. 
For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Down to verse 3. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct. Verse 4. For he is God's servant for your good. I think if I was a, a Christian living in Rome, I get this letter from the Apostle Paul. You're all eager to read it. You start going through it. All of a sudden, you start coming to this portion, and then I think I'd just be going, what? Like, does he not know who our emperor is? This is a nasty, cruel guy. We serve a nasty, cruel government, and he's saying we're to submit to this? Yes. But submission does not mean that you fully agree. Submission means something else, and that leads us to the third point. The reason we can submit to the government, regardless of who the leader is, is because ultimately we submit to God, that God is the true leader, that God is the true leader. Last week uh, in uh, our talk on marriage, we went into Ephesians 5. And yes, that's when we saw that phrase, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And I first tried to point out that, you know, wives, it doesn't say that you're to just submit to men. It says to your own husband. But then it says as to the Lord. And what we saw was that submission does not mean you are less than, you're, you're, you're worse than, you don't have as much value. No, you're a complete equal to your husband, but this is the role that you play within the marriage. And you submit to him because it's ultimately about your submission to God. It isn't about this man that you're married to. It's really about God. And I think that's some of what Paul is getting at here. Your submission to the government isn't because you approve of everything the government does. Your submission to the government is ultimately about your submission to God, that you're trusting that a sovereign God has allowed these individuals to be in these places of authority and the government. And so therefore you can submit as best you can to honor them, respect them, not to give tacit approval to the evil or sin that they might be doing, but you still submit as worship to God because that gets into some of what we saw last week as well. Wives, your marriage to your husband is only for this earth. It, Jesus made it clear that there is no marriage in heaven except the marriage between Jesus and his church. So the marriages that we experience on this planet, it's just for the now. That means these marriages are temporary. It, it's the same with the government. Every single government is temporary. Now, the Roman Empire went for you know several hundred years, but it no longer exists. It was temporary, especially in light of eternity. Even our American government is temporary. It will one day come to an end, whether that be when, you know, Jesus returns or, or, you know, we end up passing and we're no longer under our government. Every government is temporary, but your relationship to God is eternal. If you are a follower of Jesus, then Jesus is your king and you will be in his kingdom, in his government forever. And so it really is your submission to the government isn't to say, okay, I, I believe in everything they're doing. No, you can be vocal and disagree, but you still submit. Because ultimately, this is about your submission to God. Because you will be in his government forever. Now, when you end up finding yourself within a government with which you disagree, how do you go about submitting without saying, oh yeah, it's fine, whatever they do? I think it happens down at the individual level. And that leads me to point four. We submit to the government to change the government. We submit to the government to change the government. We've already put this letter in context historically, but let's put it in context within itself. Uh, look with me at chapter 12, verse 21. Right before he starts talking about the government, Paul says this. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
Now, you are in the Roman Empire, and you have an evil governor. It's so tempting to want to get revenge. But he says, don't try to overcome evil with evil. You overcome it with good. How? We'll look at the very last section. Start down with me in verse 8 of chapter 13. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. I mean, th think about it. Governments are trying to set up what is best for the masses. Well, what is best for the masses? <laughs> that there be peace. And what is one of the result of peace? That we would love one another. You truly want to fulfill the goal of government? You truly want to submit to government? You love your neighbor. And that's what he starts pointing out in verse 9. He starts quoting from uh, the Ten Commandments. It says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. I mean, these are sort of things that governments put in place for the good of the people. He says, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you start looking at a lot of the laws that exist in our nation, it really is trying to do what is best to protect the people, whether it be, you know, speed limits or health insurance or, or you know, the types of marriages. And that. They're trying to do what is best for people. And Paul's saying, you know what's really best for people? That you love them. That's it. Love them. That's what it's about. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And you know what happens when you begin to live this out? When, when you don't spend your time trying to overthrow a government through military arms, you know, a, a coup, or, or try to overthrow it through political persuasion, but that, that instead, you just go about and try and love your community and your neighbors, you end up start changing the government. I think when Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome, I think the letter stuck around. And they began to take these words to heart because history shows us that the Romans, I mean, the, the, the Christians in Rome began to live this out. And just a, a couple of, uh, a handful of Caesars later, one of them, Caesar Julian, said this about the Christians. He said, the Christian faith has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the Christians care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. He does not like Christians. And even though he sits there and hates these guys, he can't help but notice they love one another. They're doing the very things that we should be doing. We're the government. We should be the ones providing the welfare. We're the ones who should be providing the health care. We're the ones who should be doing all this. And instead, they're doing it. They're beating us at our own game. And it caught a stir within the government, and they began to change it. Not because they tried to overthrow the Caesar through military arms. Not because they raised up a great politician who could walk into the Senate and argue a great case. No, they began to change the government simply by loving one another. That's what Paul's getting at. I don't think anywhere in here Paul is giving tacit approval to the government. In fact, I think just the opposite. I think Paul is actually subversively trying to overthrow the government. For instance, you as a Roman citizen were supposed to say Caesar is Lord. If you want a fun little exercise, just go through Romans. And every time you see him refer to Jesus as Lord, circle it. Because you start realizing what he's doing. He does not once say the emperor is Lord regularly over and over and over 
Jesus is Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. And that leads us to the fifth point, that the reason we can submit to the government is because we can submit like Christ. We can submit to the government like Christ. If you look at the life of Jesus, if you're a Jesus follower, you know that he's the son of God who took on human flesh to live a sinless life, to grow up and tell us about the kingdom of God. He is the eternal king of the kingdom. And so he had all the power. I mean, we saw a guy who could walk on water. He could heal people. He could create food for people. I mean, this guy controlled everything. And yet, what do you see? You see him telling Peter, hey, go down, catch a fish. Inside is a coin. You can pay the temple tax. He stands before uh, the Sanhedrin in an illegal trial and doesn't say a word. He stands before an insecure Pontius Pilate and doesn't stop them condemning him to death. He even willingly lays himself down on a cross and has nails driven through his wrists and his feet. He submitted to a cruel, nasty Roman government, even though he was the king of kings. Why? So that he could love us. He gave his life for us. And if Jesus, the king of kings, the king of the eternal government, could lay himself down and submit to these imperfect human institutions, I think you and I can too. We can submit with honor and respect, not once saying that what they're doing is just fine and dandy, but it's because we realize who is truly in control. We follow a sovereign God, and it really becomes about him. Because these governments, they are temporary, but he is eternal. If you're wondering what this looks like, I think the story of Miriam fits this perfectly. Now, Miriam was the older sister of Moses. When Moses was born, he was born into the Israelite community when they were in slavery to Egypt. Uh, the, the Pharaoh saw these Israelites, and they were populating like crazy. And, and he started to fear that they would get so big that they could overtake Egypt. And so to try and squelch them, he put them in slavery. But it didn't work. They, they continued to just grow in numbers. And so he decided, we've got to stop their population growth. And so he made a command that they were to throw any baby male into the Nile River. Basically, kill the baby. And if you kill off all the males, within a generation or two, they'll stop growing so much. Well, Moses' family knew that is wrong. That is evil. That every baby is made in the image of God. They, people matter to God. So they couldn't just throw him in. And so they hid him. And yet we see them submit to the government because eventually they did put Moses in the Nile River. They just conveniently put him in a basket that they had waterproofed with tar. And then big sister Miriam watched what would happen. Now, some of you are familiar with the story. You know that Pharaoh's daughter herself came down with her attendants to take a bath, and they discovered the basket. And they knew immediately this is an Israelite baby. But this mom, I mean, this woman, she just has these motherly instincts, and she just immediately feels for this baby and takes it out. And Miriam is watching all of this. Now, Miriam knows that the Pharaoh is evil. His government is nasty. But she does not come out of the reeds yelling, get your hands off my baby brother. Instead, she comes out and with respect says, would you like me to find you a Hebrew woman to nurse the baby until he's weaned and can join you in the palace? 
she submits in her actions. And then the woman says yes. So Miriam goes and gets mom. And so Moses ends up being raised by his mom until the point comes where they take him to the palace and he lives there. She submitted in action regardless of this evil Pharaoh because she probably had been taught that, that God had brought the Israelites. There was this great famine during the time of Joseph. And so God relocated the Israelites down here into Egypt. God's the one who brought them there. So God would be with them. God would protect them. So maybe she trusted God. And so that's how she could show honor. You know what, though? She ended up changing the government. Because her little brother ended up becoming the man that God used to bring the Israelites out of slavery and to topple Egypt. She did these very things. And if this little girl can do this to a, a nation like Egypt, I think you and I can be like Jesus. And we can love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived, which means we also submit to the government, even when we disagree. That we would give respect where respect is due. We would give honor where honor is due. Because ultimately, our faith and our trust is in a sovereign God whose kingdom will reign forever. So, Father, I pray you would help us as your people to live life in this way. And we would live in submission to the government. Not because we think that everything it does is right and perfect, but because we believe that you, a sovereign God, have allowed these individuals to be put into these positions. And so we will do what we can as your people to honor them, to respect them, and even to pray for them. But at the same time, God, I pray that our eyes would not just be on politics because those things keep changing all the time. Instead, our eyes would be on you. And Jesus, we would be like you who came to give his life for others. And so because you came to give your life, we want to give our lives to serving others. Help us, God, to love our neighbor as ourself. So when we feel frustrated by what's happening in Washington, when, when we find ourselves um, shaking a fist at Des Moines, when, when we find ourselves disappointed in something we read in the, the Waverly newspaper, that instead of trying to enact political change, we would go and love. We would love one another. We would love our community. And we would allow you to do what you need to to change these governments. Because God, we know that your government will be perfect. Your government is pure. And we are a part of that now. So God, help us to live out the tenets and the values of your government, which is to love the people around us, to be a blessing to them, and allow you to change the governments on this earth as you see fit. So God, help us to trust you. Help us to be willing to submit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.